Again, thank you, uh, thank you all for being here this morning, and uh, we want to remind you that although uh, this is definitely a, uh, an artificial kind of worship, it's not artificial if the Holy Spirit is involved and drawing us all together as He uh, is capable of doing, and not only capable but willing to do, uh, because He loves His people and He loves His church. So as we've been doing, I want to invite you to open the book of James. We're going to read uh, this first 18 verses, and I'm going to close off this portion of James today, and we'll move into the rest of the book. We've spent a lot of time in the first chapter of James because it serves as kind of an introduction to the rest of the letter. And uh, so let's read these first 18 verses if you have your scriptures with you, uh, or you can just listen and, and, and I'll read them to you. Now hear God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let them ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all their ways. Let the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. James wrote a very interesting letter. It was uh, similar in some ways to other kinds of letters, but in another way, it is utterly unique in the New Testament. The book of James is not a letter like any of the letters of Paul. Uh, It's called an encyclical paranesis. And what that means is, that's the technical term, it's the only New Testament writing like this. The only thing that we can compare it to in the rest of the Bible is some of the wisdom literature like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. James is really concerned 
that Christians are not behaving in a way that is uh, commensurate with what has occurred to them in their life through the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He sees an inconsistency between what they say and what they do. And so he writes this letter in order to realign people and tell them, look, if you're not actually behaving in a certain way uh, that is equal to what you say you believe, then your faith is false. And none of us like uh, to be stung with the accusation of being a hypocrite. In fact, that's not just true of Christians. I think anybody that is uh, uh, pursuing faith in, in whatever tradition they're in, uh, if someone comes along and says, you know, you're a hypocrite and you're not uh, behaving according to your faith, it stings us. And it should especially do that for Christians. makes you wonder, what is a Christian? What is Christianity all about? And James is giving us a portrait of both the external, what it looks like to be a Christian, but also the internal, because he ties both the heart and the actions inextricably together. You cannot separate them. You can fake it. People do. We know that for a fact because we fake it. But it should bother us that we're doing that. It should cause our conscience to be uh, unsettled. And so James writes to this church in chapter 1. They're dispersed all over the Asia Minor. And he's telling them truly, what is the gospel? You see, the gospel's different from other messages that we've had from other kinds of faith traditions. The gospel is not, as Ravi Zacharias famously says, that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And there's all the difference in the world. If Christianity is just another kind of religion where you can kind of improve your life, say, hey, I'm going to get Christianity and I'm going to glom it on to the rest of my life, then, then all you've done is pick a religion and you're just trying to improve yourself. But you're not really worshiping the true God. Christianity is not about earning merit. It's not about uh, trying to do good enough so that God will love you or trying to be sincere because nobody is completely sincere. Christianity is not about merit. It's not even about us in the end. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for us, in us, and through us. And for that, in gratitude and out of love for Him, we are to move powerfully in our life pursuing obedience and structuring our life around Him, which, is, which involves repentance, faith, and of course, new obedience. And as that cycle runs in your life, we talk about this at church all the time in our theology classes and in Sunday school. As that cycle runs in your life, you will see yourself moving in a direction that is glorifying to God. So he does give us a series of loosely connected instruction in ethical behavior. And he ties these things to not just the outward behavior, because anybody can do that, but really to the heart. And he says, when you are under trial, look at verses 2 through 4. He's talking about just the trials of life. You know, it's rare that the whole globe goes through a similar trial. I don't know that, that this has happened since perhaps World War II, where the entire globe, the entire earth, is under the same conflict. And today, we're under that conflict. Everywhere in the globe, people are sick. They're separating, uh, socially separation. 
uh, staying at home, trying to figure out how to make a living, how to do things uh, in this new environment. And it's very interesting that we're sharing that same test, that same trial. James does not say, be joyful and act false and, and hop around with the happy, clappy ap- attitude. He doesn't say that at all. He says, consider it joy. In other words, as you look at a trial in your life, some trials are horrific. Some are not so bad. But some are accompanied with great suffering. And when you're suffering in a trial and going through it, it's hard to, to uh, fake your feelings. And he's not saying to do that. He's not saying go around with a happy face when you're suffering in a trial. What he is saying is consider or think about it. Don't block out your, your mind. Don't try to empty your mind. But fill it up with the truth. That God is sovereign, He has got you, He's not going to let you go, and that this trial in the end is nothing but one more thing that will serve you in your life. And we are to consider that joy. Think about it, say there's something underneath my life that is holding me and propping me up. And he says, the testing of our faith will work patience, it will create patience. The trial is not trying to come in, the trial doesn't have a consciousness of it, its own, saying, I'm going to come in and, and trip Chuck, I'm going to try to mess him up. The trial's not doing that, God's not doing that. The trial is just when the circumstances of life that are all around us are intersecting what we believe. And when a trial comes, often they, the trial is challenging beliefs that are wrong. And those wrong beliefs need to be challenged. And we need to step up in faith and say, no, no, I know my expectations may not be right, but God's Word is true. So James says, look at verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask Him, because you're going to need wisdom to move through these trials. He says, ask God for wisdom. Wisdom, uh, I gave you a definition a few weeks ago, and I'm going to repeat it, because this is very helpful. It's a big picture definition, but wisdom is rightly relating to reality, not merely analyzing it. This is from Dr. Walke's commentary on, on the Proverbs. That How do you relate to a trial? How do you relate to extreme suffering? What are you supposed to do? You're going to need wisdom. Not in analyzing it, trying to figure it out, because there are th- some things that happen to us you will never figure out. I will never figure out. And, and even if God explained it to me, I probably wouldn't understand it. So he's not talking about just analyzing the trials in our life. He's talking about, okay, I've got this trial. Now what, what is my, uh, my relationship to it and how do I react to it? Ask God. And he says, and when you do, don't doubt. Now what kind of doubt is he talking to? Is he, doubting, is he talking about just doubt in a, a general sense? No. He's talking about doubt as a, a, a power, a twin power that can come into your mind and heart. And part of that is going to push you away. Doubt can take you away from God and doubt can take you to God. They both will do the same thing. When you're struggling in a trial and the world's upside down and you're saying, why is this happening? You have a choice. You can turn to God and look for answers and ask for wisdom and move through the trial with patience and endurance, looking to Christ as your Savior and trusting Him. Or you can get angry and mad and start to blame Him 
And that means you become unstable, what James calls like a wave of the sea. You're going to get battered and tossed around. You're going to get beat up. And I don't know anybody that hasn't been there. I don't know anyone that hasn't been, been unsettled by a trial in their life and got swept away because of the emotion and the hardship. And sometimes the circumstances are, are overwhelming. And we get swept away like a wave. And we get battered around. And James is not saying, you know, everything is instantaneous. So you've got to just do all this at a moment. When, when you have time to consider it, think. No, this may be battering me, but I've got to go to the solid rock. I've got to move to the one who is, as the writer of Hebrews said, the anchor of my soul. And I've got to lock myself back down into him. And then you start reeling yourself in closer, closer. So you can move to God in your doubt and struggle and fear in deeper trust, deeper faith, deeper dependence, deeper humility, more patience. Or, and this happens to everyone, but it can become toxic. Anger, cynicism, and I've told you repeatedly in this series, cynicism is the worst possible sin you can imagine because it is a denial of all that God is. He gives. He gives generously. He gives to all without finding fault. That's what he says in verse 5. This is the character of God. And so often we turn against him, we get angry with him, and that's exactly the thing that that Satan, the enemy wants us to do. He wants us to think God is behind these trials, these tests, these temptations. And so he goes on to say, don't blame God. This is later in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he's tempted. He's being tempted by God. Because that will take you away from Him, not towards Him. So he says, don't doubt. And then in verse 9-11, through this is fascinating, because James takes a little couple verses here, and he explains, he just drops this in. It's, It's loosely connected, but it is connected. And he tells us, let the the, the lowly, the humble, uh, boast, exalt in their exaltation. And let the, the high and the mighty, the rich and powerful, uh, boast in their humiliation. And so he interjects right at the moment that we need it, an understanding of what the kingdom of God is like. You know, I, I think people have, especially here in the West where we're so prosperous and we have so much, uh, to think that, that heaven is just Disneyland on steroids. We just need more fun, more blessings. And if you trust God, it's just going to come showering down on you from heaven above. We don't stop to think for one moment that the only reason we have what we have and that we're in the kind of beautiful building that we're in and that we have money in the bank, most people. We've got food in our fridge. All of those things, we don't stop to think that it's God's sovereign providence that has brought us there, that has cared for us. I, I, I don't understand it, but I know that there's, there's a lot of questions about, well, how come God is good to some people and not good to others? And what James is saying is that, look, the kingdom of God is the place, the one place in all of creation where all of those things have been reversed. 
The lowly have been lifted up. The high and the mighty are supposed to recognize that money can be taken away. You know, just six weeks ago, we would not have imagined, two months ago, we would not have imagined the unemployment, uh, the, the sickness in our world. Nobody would have even thought about it. Stock market was through the roof. Everything was great. And in a moment, in a second, it's gone. And James is saying, don't put your trust in those things. They're going to be taken away. They're like grass that, that fades. They're like vapor. They blow away. Don't trust that. There's a grand and great reversal. And he's telling Christians, find that new identity because that cannot be taken away from you. They can take everything away from you. This world can be, the the whole world can, can go against you. But they can't get the true self, the true you. And this new identity is described briefly in a genius way in verses 9 through 11. James is re reiterating the teaching of Jesus, his half-brother, and he's saying, our wealth. Jesus said, look, don't put your treasures on earth, put them in heaven. He's not saying don't have a savings account. We'll talk about that after the service. No, he's not talking about that. He's saying don't let your heart become so attached that you can't let it go. I, I've been reading again for the, about the 50th time. I started reading The Lord of the Rings back I don't know, before I had kids, almost 40 years ago. And I've always loved Tolkien's uh, trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. And one of the sayings that I love so much is one of the little hobbits has to throw away uh, a treasure, uh, a brooch that was given to him by this uh, queen of the elves, Galadriel. And, and, and they've been captured and they're being hauled off to prison and uh, they, they need to leave a trail behind And so he tosses away this treasure that was utterly unique and he throws it on the trail off to the side so that those uh, fellows that are following to try to rescue them can find the trail. And one of the fellows that finds him finally gives the treasure back and says to him, somebody that is not willing to cast away a treasure at need is in fetters. If you're not willing to throw something away, if you're not willing to give it up, even to the extent in the Bible it says, even to your own life, if you're not willing to lose your life, you will never find your life. We can't hang on to those things because we're not God. However, He can hold them and He does hold them. He promises that. And so Jesus said, store your treasure in heaven. That's where your wealth should be. Your worth, greater love has no one than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And I am your friend. You are my friends. That's what you're worth. Our status. He says the last will be first. You don't have to try to climb the corporate ladder and drag, drag people down or put people, you know, be the boss of everything. You can serve. You're free to do it because you can't hang on to it anyway. And our security, He said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. So that we have utter and complete security. We don't have to fear anything taking us away from Him. It's remarkable. So He tells us in verses 9-11, through find that new self as you go through your trials and your struggles, find your new identity in Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God, where these values and things have been reversed. 
and where things are permanent, not fleeting like they are now in this world. My goodness. And then in verse 13, he says, don't blame God. He says, don't blame God for the troubles that are in this world. Folks, all you have to do is read the first three chapters of the Bible. You get to chapter 3. You find out where sin and evil originates. And it doesn't originate with God. It originates with us as human beings. Now, I know there's lots of questions. And I invite you to, uh, to bring those questions. Christianity has lots of good answers. Not all the answers, but lots of good answers uh, to the origins of evil, why there's evil, why there's bad in the world. There are good answers. And no one should go away without having at least some of those answers. Uh, Don't think that, that this all happened and God didn't know what was going on. He knew. But there was more to it than that. And He is not the author of evil. And so James in verse 13 warns them because in a trial that's going to be uh, one of the struggles. God is not the author of evil and to blame him, think about this, to blame him is to step, take a step or many steps into the dark to go away from the answer, to move away from the light. And so James tells us don't do that. So he tells us find a new self Get a grip, understand what sin is all about, own it, because our sins belong to us. They're us that are creating those things. And then finally in 17 and 18, James brings us back powerfully to our Savior. He says this, look, every good, every perfect, every gift is from above. It comes down from the Father. It's not coming down to you from your boss in heaven. From your, from your king even in heaven. Uh, it's coming down to you from your father in heaven. There's a, a, a relationship, a filial relationship that is, uh, it boggles the mind. Now I know some people have had bad relationships with their earthly fathers and so it's difficult to imagine a benevolent father, a good father who's just and right. And that's why you've got to immerse yourself in the Scriptures. And look at what James does. He piles up these adjectives to describe God. Good, perfect, a gift giver. He's above. He's not, he's not below. He's down, not down here uh, like the earthly gods were who were capricious and, and taunting and they played with human beings like pets. No, He's a Father in heaven. And there's no variation. He's going to be consistent. I wish I could go back and be more consistent with my kids. I was, I was a maniac raising my, my boys. The fact that they're still alive is a testament to God's goodness, not to mine. And God is that kind of a father where He's entirely... He doesn't change. You can count on Him. You can lean into Him when everything around you is changing. And then James says this, Of His own will, He brought us forth. By His word of truth, by the Lord Jesus Christ, He brought you, He gave you birth. Birth from above. New birth. So that you could be a kind of first fruits. That's His choicest, best, most prized treasure. And we don't see ourselves as a prized treasure. Especially in a trial, we think God has thrown us off. Not at all. It's the opposite. The trial will only do good for us if we will trust Him. 
And so you have to consider that. Am I going to trust Him? And all of this, what is that perfect gift that came down? Well, I just want to remind you once again, the perfect gift that came down was our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say, and I'll show you how James, although they, they probably didn't know about each other's letters, we, we don't have any reason to believe that James was reading uh, Paul's letters on the internet, because they didn't have the internet, uh, and getting letters was hard to, to do, So, uh, but how the Scriptures join things together is marvelous. Listen. You must have the same attitude Jesus had. Though he was God, he didn't think equality with God something to cling to. Jesus didn't hold on to that kind of treasures and stuff. He let it go for others' sake. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took a humble position of a slave, born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. He died a criminal's death. On the cross. Therefore God exalted him to a place of highest honor. Gave him a name above all names. That at the name of Jesus every knee would bow. And every tongue would confess. In heaven above or on the earth beneath. That Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. In his commentary on James. That I've enjoyed very much as I've gone through this. Dr. Dan Doriani said. Jesus wore the crown of thorns, so that all who believe in Him may receive the crown of life. You see, this grand reversal is not just in your life. That grand reversal took place in Christ's life. He was high. He became low. He was sinless. But the Apostle Paul said He became sin for us. And the giver became the gift. And I hope that you all will consider this. In these days of hardship, and they are difficult. We don't even know. We're probably not even looking at the tip of the iceberg. Remember Jesus. Trust Him. Will you do it? Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy that endures forever. There truly is no one like You in heaven above or on the earth beneath. And I pray that many many of our congregation and friends and family, anyone who listens to this message of grace and goodness from the book of James will know that they must turn their lives over to the gift giver, the giver of life, from whom we receive all good things and all those things are summed up in Jesus Christ alone. Please help us, Father. Strengthen us. Have mercy on us. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.